Welcome to the Living Parables Podcast, where we uncover spiritual truth and lessons God has given us through His Word and our own life stories. I am Nate, your host. To all the listeners tuning into the show, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I appreciate all of you. And now, let us begin. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to a brand new week. I'm glad you're here with me today. And I am very excited to start this three-part series. Last week was the introduction towards sanctification. Just an overview of what that is. And now today we start part one of the sanctification series, Trust the Process. And that is regarding positional sanctification or justification. One of the most intimidating questions can be asked is what is our or my position with God? What is our standing with God at this moment? Every other religion is based upon merit, your good deeds. If your good deeds outweigh your bad, then you'll be okay. Here's what the Bible says regarding our merit and deeds. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, For all of us, not some of us, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, or other translations say, dirty, filthy rags. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Very powerful way to start this out. But all of our righteous deeds outside of Christ don't mean a thing. We are not righteous. We are not holy on our own merit, on our own good deeds. That does not mean that the things we do aren't based upon wanting to do good for other people. That doesn't mean that at all. That doesn't mean we stop loving one another. That doesn't mean we stop caring for one another and treating others well. This is just telling us that our salvation is not based upon our righteousness on our own. We cannot earn our way into heaven. If you think about how life is right now, if I go to school, I can earn whatever grade I choose. If I don't want to put any effort in anything, I'll probably get an F. If I want to put in maximum effort, put in a lot of time and studying, I'll probably get an A. That's not always the case, but it's based upon personal effort. Your job. Maybe there is a, a ladder to climb there where you start from the bottom and you work your way up. That's all on personal effort. And the same goes with our relationships. If we put minimal or to no effort into our relationships, odds are they're going to fail or they're not going to be as strong. And the opposite of that would be putting a lot of effort into it. Those relationships are stronger, they're better, and more fruitful. And that's why the Bible, honestly, is so countercultural because... Our whole entire existence in this world 
is works-based. And I will just tell you this, this might come as a little bit of a shock, but anything that's works-based as it pertains to God is of Satan, is demonic. So that is the great lie that you can be as bad as you want to be and you can live however you want. But if you're sorry and you know you do have a shallow belief in God that you can be saved, that you'll be okay. And that's just not true. So let's look at the next couple verses here. Psalm 53, 1 through 3. This is what it says. And remember, if you're with me at all, make sure you have your Bibles with you because we are going to get our spiritual workout in by going through the scriptures. This is what it says. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Sounds a lot like Romans 3, doesn't it? Absolutely it does. Proverbs 14, 12. Proverbs is the next book over from Psalms. 14, 12. You might have heard this before. Maybe this is your first time hearing it, but listen to this. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So, so far, it's not looking too good for us about our own merit and our own deeds. It's not looking good. Because of the fall of man back in Genesis 3 that occurred in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, we are born with a sinful nature. There is no escaping it. There is no paying your way out of it. We will be dealing with the sinful nature, unfortunately, our whole lives. Just to give you a few pieces of scripture that back that statement up, Psalm 51, verse 5, says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. We're born with the sinful nature. My little baby right now. All he wants to do is disobey. <laughs> all, he, all he wants to do is uh, tell us no. And whatever he's not supposed to do, he's going to do. And so that's just the nature of people. That's the result of sin. Now, let me just clarify something real quick before people jump on me and say, oh, he said his little two-year-old son is is sinful. There is a point 
where at his age, he is not consciously sinning. He doesn't know the difference right now between right and wrong. He's not developed there yet, obviously. So I just want to point that out. There is a there is an age of accountability. I don't know what that age is. Maybe it's 13. Maybe it's older than that. I don't know. But all I do know is God is gracious and compassionate, and he understands that our little children are still innocent. Although sometimes as parents, it drives us nuts. <laughs> uh, but we love them. So let's look at Psalm 58.3. We're, we're really in Psalms right now, aren't we? So Psalm 58, verse 3. Pages stuck together here. Here we go. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. So again, we are born with the sinful nature. We are consumed with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 1 John 2.16 But one verse over in 17 the world and its lusts are passing away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Ladies and gentlemen, I have something to tell you here. We all struggle with 1 John 2, 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That encompasses everything, all aspects of our lives. It's all sinful. That does not come from God. So again, we struggle with sin. We have a difficult time with sin. And so pride goes before destruction. That's found in Proverbs 16. And we just read that a fool says in his heart that there is no God. That is a direct result of pride. And again, pride is a byproduct of sin. The sobering reality of our spiritual condition without Christ is that we're deathly sick. And even Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we are dead in our transgressions. Our spiritual hearts are desperately sick and in dire need of a doctor or a physician. Jesus came to earth for this very reason. So right now, I want you to turn with me to Mark, the second chapter, verses 16 and 17. Again, bonus points to you if you can beat me there. Mark. Chapter 2, 16 and 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's four Gospels. Chapter 2, 16 and 17. This is what it says. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors. Remember, tax collectors were extremely hated. Not just by the regular Jewish people, but also the Jewish leaders as well. But jumping back there, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I just want to point something out there that I did not come to call the righteous. Jesus is not saying that there are righteous people on this earth outside of being a complete, trusting, faithful follower of Christ. 
he is talking about the self-righteous people and more focused is he's talking about the Pharisees. They thought they were righteous and holy on their own, but the righteous he is talking about that just, that, that just doesn't exist outside of him. It doesn't exist outside of him. And he is the only source of righteousness, which you can find that in first Corinthians chapter one, verse 30. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit on the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5. He is saying that we need to come to the realization that we are spiritually bankrupt without him. We can do nothing apart from him. John chapter 15. See all, all these connecting here? And with all this true knowledge now that we know of, one would feel that it is impossible to get to heaven on our own goodness. And if you're there, that is where you want to be. And I'll be honest, that is not a place where we want to be. When people tell us that we're doing things wrong, when we're being criticized, we get defensive and we justify ourselves. And right now, if you're listening to this, you might be justifying yourself right now. And take it from me, who's been there several times. Don't do it. Don't do it. So we are going to talk about two major parables slash real stories. And we're going to compare the two. So we are going to look at first Luke chapter 18 the 18th verse through the 26th verse. Now, I know some of you are going to be very, very familiar with this parable. And I will be honest with you, it's becoming one of my favorite parables because I struggled uh, in my faith with almost being at times pharisaical, I don't want to say self-righteous, but I, I was looking upon people who were sinful and was thinking in my own mind, I'm glad I'm not like them. And that's going to make sense here in just a minute. So we're going to go ahead and read Luke 18, 18 through 26. So go ahead and follow with me here and let's begin. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall treasure, excuse me, you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard this said, then who can be saved? So uh, what we're going to do here is we're going to break this down just a little bit. So this rich young ruler is self-righteous. He came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, here's the deal. What do I need to do? What good deeds must I do? What must I accomplish to get to heaven? He's not going through Christ there. Remember, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No, one's come, no one comes to the Father except through me. So again, you can only get to heaven through Christ and Christ alone. Well, he's trying to get in on his own righteous deeds. But he also says, good teacher. Jesus responds in the 19th verse, says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Some people get freaked out about this verse and say, oh, he's saying he's not God. And he's saying, no, he's not. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is to this rich young ruler, do you realize that you called me good? Do you believe that I am God as well? And that obviously isn't the case. That's why I'm saying, why do you call me good? Do you know what you're saying? So again, it this almost, in a way, it does affirm his deity. It also affirms John 14, 6, what I just quoted, because he is the only way to heaven. He is the only source of salvation. So again, he is God, and he's saying to this young man, do you realize what you're saying? Because if he if it was that what he meant, he'd be right on. But that's not at all. And I'm assuming this guy is going to be very arrogant. And, and I'm not saying all rich people are like this, but you've seen him. And he comes up and he he has everything. He's extremely wealthy. He wants for nothing. But you know what? Something he is still lacking. He has no idea for sure if he is going to go to heaven or not. His salvation is in question. And all the wealth, all the prosperity, all the toys, all the bells and whistles don't mean a thing. Salvation through Christ is what matters. So, not just this here. This gets really interesting. I have kept all the commandments that you spoke of. Right? Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do honor your father and mother. All these I kept from my youth. That is a lie. That is a lie. No, you have not. You've kept them perfectly this whole time. You are self-deceived, my friend. So then go God incarnate in Christ, and Christ goes right to the heart. Okay. 
one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. Then it says, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And what was his response? He heard these things, processed it, became very sad, for he's extremely rich, and he walked away. Why? Because all the self-righteous things that he claimed that he had kept since his youth, he was full of idolatry. His money was his God. That was more important than Christ. Now, this story, we're going to move on to chapter 19 of Luke. 1 through 10, a story about Zacchaeus. And some of you know him, some of you may not. I want you to listen to this. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Ooh, I'm going to pause here for a minute. Two rich people back to back. Hmm. Remember, tax collectors were extremely hated. Extremely. Verse 3. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. He was a small guy, a little fella. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. Just to give you a little bit of a quick little side note here, a sycamore tree had low-hanging branches, so you could actually climb on them. So he climbed up so he can see Christ. Verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Keep a note on that. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner? Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost boy that's two different people isn't it well let's talk about Zacchaeus for a minute here the difference between the two men is significant and we're kind of doing a little comparison here before I really get into Zacchaeus. But both are sinful. Both are in need of saving. Both are sick. 
with sin. One recognized their spiritual condition and the other could not see it. One came arrogantly. Basically, how can I earn my own salvation? And the other was so desperate to see Christ that he climbed up on a tree. And then when he said, in verse 6, we, I told you, kind of keep a little note of that. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. He was excited. He was happy. And his heart and his spirit was ready for salvation. Now, something here I want to point out. When Zacchaeus, who in his encounter with Christ, was saved, he was regenerated and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit at that moment. Verse 8, people freak out about this too. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. That, my friends, is not what saved him. Christ saved him, and that is the fruit of that salvation. I'm going to jump over real quick. And this is not on my notes, but this is very important to understand. Ephesians 2, 8. If you're with me for any length of time, I refer to Ephesians 2, 8 a lot. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and then not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. My friends, if salvation was works-based and giving back to people and being philanthropic, the rich would be the first ones in line. But that doesn't mean they're always doing it from the heart. But right here, it's clear. It's crystal clear. It is not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Well, I got to heaven because I had a school named after me. And I had a library named after me. And I built a school for whatever. Verse 10. Now listen to this. This is key here. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. My friends, Christ redeems us. He transforms us. He regenerates us. He, he removes that heart of stone that the rich young ruler had. And he gives us a heart of flesh and a new spirit. He puts his spirit within us. And then verse 8, that is the result of his salvation. Not the cause of his salvation. There's the difference. Do you see the difference? It's big time. He knew he wronged people. He knew he sinned against people. He defrauded people. Tax collectors were notorious for that. They would charge people more to fill their pockets. Their own people. He knew he did wrong. I'm going to pay him back fourfold. That's way more than he was supposed to. That's the result of salvation. Because that is what... Christ is all about transforming and 
then being able to do good works, all for the glory of God. Now, when he said four times as much, I want you to understand something here. Because I got excitable there. <laughs> That's okay. Jesus didn't say that he must do that to follow him. To give back fourfold. The spirit transforms the heart and the mind. And this is a great example of it. The law required a fifth, a restitution acquired by fraud. So four times as much was equivalent to him comparing himself to the lowest common robber. He was poor in spirit. He understood his spiritual condition. He knew how wretched and vile and what a horrible sinner he was. But that made him right for salvation. He was ready. And I pose this question to you now. Are you the rich young ruler or Zacchaeus? The rich young ruler is still condemned. And Zacchaeus is no longer condemned and salvation had come to his house. Has salvation come to your house? So, you might be wondering, well, we haven't really talked about justification just yet. So then, how are we justified before a righteous holy God? Well, I'm so glad you asked, because now we're going to get into it. Romans 3, 21 through 26. We're going to read that. And I mentioned Romans 3 a little earlier. Romans has become such a foundation for me. And I tell you, when you're starting out as a new Christian, or maybe you haven't maybe you haven't been reading the Bible as much as you want to lately, and you just maybe you've been busy, just read Romans one through eight, just back and forth, back and forth. So start one, go all the way to eight, then go back. I'll tell you what, it's just such so rich and edifying for our souls. So 21 through 26 in chapter 3 is what it says. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a lot to unpack. That is a lot to go over. We're going to keep it relatively basic. We are justified by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross and by the resurrection on the third day. We are justified by our faith, our complete belief upon the name of Christ. Belief that he is God and through him alone salvation is found. Romans 5.1 says this, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
My friends, outside of Christ, we are at war with God. But upon being saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, now we have peace with God. All that wrath we stored up over all these years of being sinful and prideful and unrepentant, all that wrath storing up is now gone. Going down to the ninth verse in the fifth chapter of Romans, this is a culmination of all that we've read so far regarding justification. But listen to this. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, Christ. My friends, we are justified by the redemptive work of Christ. And again, the work on the cross, the burial in the tomb, and the resurrection. Now what we're going to do is we're going to jump over to one of my favorite verses regarding justification is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And as we're getting there, this verse has been so foundational for me. It's been so helpful. I can't even put it into words, but let's read it together. He made him, talking about Christ here, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I could do a whole podcast episode on this verse alone. I can talk to you for hours of the significance of this verse. But I, I just want to focus here for just a minute. I want us to bring it down a little bit and to really just process what this is saying. And before we really get into that, think about this. Jesus Christ is God. He is co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He had you in mind before the world began. He knows you by name. He knows the very number of hairs on your head. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in your mind and what you think about. And he came down from heaven in flesh, less than what he was, less than angels. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. And to fully redeem us, to make us stand right before a righteous and holy God, he had to be the appeasement of God's wrath, the atonement for our sins. So when it says in verse 21, he made him who knew no sin, there is that perfect sinless life, to be sin on our behalf. When he was on the cross, he bore all of our sins, every single last one of them. 
so that we, unrighteous people, sinful people, we sin on a daily basis. We sin in every hour. I sinned before I started this podcast episode. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Talking about Christ. Christ became sin. And he gave us his righteousness. So that we can stand before God Almighty himself. And enter into heaven through Christ. No, Father, he or she is mine. I died for them. They put their trust and faith in me. Well done, my good and faithful slave. That is the power of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Because we cannot stand before God Almighty himself, who is completely righteous and holy, just as Christ is, just as the Holy Spirit is. But we're standing before God at judgment day, before his mighty throne. And we're standing there and having to give an account for everything that we've ever done. What are we going to say? Well, I I fed the homeless. Uh, I gave money to charity and I've done this, 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 and this. They're like filthy rags without Christ. With Christ, they're everything. And there's and they're for the glory of Christ. Because we're taking his love for people that he generously showed us in the book of John. Now, we're going to take that step farther. I'm going to show you. At the end of John, chapter 21, 25. I'm ad-libbing here. This is not in my notes. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. My friends, he served people. He loved people. He did everything you could ever think of, more than you could ever know, more than we could ever do in a single lifetime. He did probably in a day. But that's what we're supposed to do, all for his glory. So let me ask you these questions and we're going to go. Where do you stand with God right now? If you were to stand face to face with him right now, which we would all be on bended knee, but if we were to stand in front of him right now, where would you stand? Is your heart like the stone heart that we talked about with the rich young ruler? Unrepentant, opposing? Or is your heart a heart of flesh like Zacchaeus, ready for redemption and salvation? Has salvation come to your house? Are you going to stand on your own good deeds when the day of judgment comes? Or are you going to believe that Jesus' righteousness is sufficient to justify us before an almighty, righteous, holy God? Through faith in him. I would challenge you. And I would 
strongly urge you. So this is the exhortations part of our episode here. But I would just say, come and put your faith in Christ. Believe upon his name with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you will be made righteous because of his righteousness. That's a guarantee. That's a promise. So, I pray that you would make that decision. That you would pass from death to life. Because... Jesus is the only source of salvation. He is the source of justification. And I pray that the Lord blesses and keeps you and gives you peace. And until next time, brothers and sisters, God bless you all.